Welcome to the VBAC Lean Podcast. We are here today with our new friend, Laura, who we've been chatting with way too much time before we hit the record button. Megan's like the, the one to keep me on track because you know how I am. I can get off on tangents and everything, but we're excited to share her experience with you today because she's got a really amazing story and we absolutely love her. But before we get going into her story, Megan has a review of the week for us. I do. I'm so excited. This is from Paige and she was on Apple podcast and her review says, um, or her topic, the subject is allowing me to believe in myself, which I love that because everyone should believe in their self. She says, my husband and I are currently trying to conceive. I knew immediately after my C-section that I never wanted to have that experience again. This podcast has given me strength to already switch providers and the knowledge to prepare for a VBAC. I can do this. And Paige, we agree. You can do this and believe in yourself and your body and this upcoming baby and happy trying. Happy trying. Happy <laughs> trying to you. you I would that? say happy conceiving. Happy <laughs> You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Frankham and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Do you want a VBAC but don't know where to start? It's easy to feel like we need to figure it all out on our own. That's what we used to do, and it was the loneliest, most ineffective thing we have ever done. That's why Megan and I created our signature course, How to VBAC, the ultimate preparation course for parents that you can find at the VBAClink.com. It is the most comprehensive VBAC preparation course in the world, perfectly packaged in an online self-paced video course. Together, Megan and I have helped over 800 parents get the birth that they wanted, and we are ready to help you too. Head on over to the VBAClink.com to find out more and sign up today. That's the vbacklink.com. See you there. So before we get into the story, you guys, I've got to tell you, this week has been kind of nuts for both Megan and I, but I want to tell you, I wish I could count how many messages on my phone I got from Megan <laughs> about um, my emotions. She's remodeling her house, like her upstairs and her downstairs. And like, I, I still don't even have a clear cut answer about where she's sleeping right now. <laughs> but guys, she had termites like spilling out the walls when they turned down downstairs. And isn't that yeah. gross? Like, that's gross. It was so gross, you guys. Can we talk about it? Just like, can you have like a two minute offload session? Because I feel like you kind of need it. Well, I'm just saying like, it's pretty gross. And it made me feel scared. <laughs> Maybe I feel scared because I'm like, oh my gosh, where are they? Like they could be in every wall and I just don't know it. But I saw some signs and had a feeling that I should cut open this wall. And sure enough, lots and lots of termites. It was like a waterfall of termites. And the wall was so weak. It just like fell. I barely oh. touched it with my toe and it just like fell over. Like it was disgusting. So don't worry yeah. though. We have 
taking That's care great. of it. We had termite guys here for seven hours the other day, <laughs> drilling all around my house and my foundation. Again. So hopefully those little buggers are dying. You know what? If oh my gosh, I don't even know how you can stand to sleep in your house. Like I, know. I would be like lying gross. down asleep and like closing my eyes, getting ready for bed, and I would like feel the termites crawling. Oh, away, so even there's none. <laughs> so like, the I night would sleep that I outside. Found, well, kids. so that's the thing. Is the night <laughs> the night that we found it? I slept outside with my kids. They were so sweet. Like on the trampoline. Yeah, on the trampoline. With an electric fence around it. No, (laughs) we, yeah, we slept on the trampoline and we were sleeping under a tree and it just like had dropped a couple like leaves or whatever the heck, something on me. And I literally kept thinking like, oh my gosh, they're all over me because it was so gross. But. Oh my gosh. It wasn't termite. And I haven't seen one termite since he came and poisoned them. So I'm getting like creepy crawly goosebumpies just thinking about it. It's pretty gross. It's pretty gross. So apparently with termites, they have to have water. So somewhere underneath my house, there's a water source and they're coming up. Yeah. We already knew that. Yeah. So what a great way to start the episode. I know. Right. That's my week. Termites. That's kind of a bad idea. Termites and drywall. <laughs> That's all right. Well, now uh, you know we're just like you guys. All right, we're gonna have an going. uplifting story, an uplifting, yes. motivating story. Yes, we are. Laura is from Des Moines. Des Moines. Okay, is the S silent? Des Moines or Des Moines? Des Moines. It is silent. Des Moines. <laughs> it's French. Oh my gosh, Des Moines. Des Moines. Des Moines. Iowa. Yes. Okay, and Laura has two kids, a three-year-old daughter and her V-back baby who was born in April during COVID-19. And can I just like put a small plug in here for anyone having a baby during COVID-19 because it's just a really sucky time to have a baby right now. She's a high school Spanish teacher. Ah, si, senorita. Has that that Spanish? (laughs) That's about all I got right now. That was great. Good. (laughs) I tell my students, any effort to speak it is to be applauded. Perfect. (laughs) And she's doing her best to teach her children both English and Spanish, which is super cool. And she loves to run, be outside, garden, and spend time with her husband and children. And we are super excited for Laura to share her story. And I'm going to just... Sometimes I have a hard time knowing, like, how to segue into, like, the person that's talking. So I have this, like, awkward time where I just stumble around with my words, kind of like I'm doing right now, because I don't quite know how to make the transition. We're, like, almost 150, so 150 episodes in. It's like, come on, Julie, get it together. Anyway, so I'm just going to, like, do an abrupt halt, and Laura, you can just start talking, okay? Wonderful. I'm ready. And I want to start by saying how excited I am to be here. I don't want to leave that until the end in case I forget after going through everything. But this podcast, I think, was um, a big factor in helping me mentally prepare to get my V back. And I spent a lot of walks during March and April listening to your episodes and your other inspiring guests. And I think that figured heavily into me feeling prepared for my my successful be back so thank you for having me here i'm really excited to talk about my uh, two pregnancies and their deliveries yay thank you for being here and thanks for being a supporter all this time absolutely this has been an amazing community even though my son is here my v-back baby's here i i still am enjoying being a part of the community no good we love hearing stuff like that well i will start talking about um, my daughter's pregnancy first my daughter tessa is three And we got pregnant with her 
on our first round of the medication Clomid, years before we started trying to have a baby, a doctor had told me, based on blood work that I had done, that I would never be able to carry a baby to term. And other providers I've talked to since then have kind of debunked his comment, but it always was in the back of my mind that I would not be able to conceive and carry easily. So we had some trouble conceiving my daughter, but Clomid worked for us on the first round and we were really grateful that we didn't have to go any further um, down the infertility road because that obviously can be a very challenging road for couples. Um, So we got pregnant with her and I had a a relatively enjoyable pregnancy. I didn't have a lot of nausea. Um, I'm a runner and so I I was able to run maybe till about six months into my pregnancy. I ran a half marathon at five and a half months. It definitely wasn't fast, but I ran it and it was one of my favorite races that I've run because I didn't have like the pressure of needing to meet a certain time goal. It was just finish. That is Um, so cool. I I feel pretty proud of it. Megan would do something like that. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. It was just super empowering. And like, I felt like as people watched me and like, they saw me like, they were like, yeah, that's awesome. I'm like, yeah, I am awesome. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a great experience. Once I couldn't run anymore, then I would go to the YMCA and I would water walk in the pool. And wow. that, that was amazing. Uh, it feels yeah. so good to be in the water when, when you're pregnant, I would strongly recommend that, but I would like just walk when I could touch. And then when I got to the point in the lap lane that I couldn't touch, I would like flutter kick for a little bit. And uh, yeah, I did that three or four times a week, right up until the day that I was, I went into labor. So like in my mind, I was really active. I was really healthy. I thought that would equal a really easy delivery. That was not the case, but that's what I thought would happen. And I had a rib out of place during that pregnancy. That was maybe the most difficult part from like months three to like, or excuse me, like six to eight, I had this rib out of place and it was super painful, but uh, a physical therapist helped me with that, get it back into place and, and do some manipulations to make me more comfortable. So that between the physical therapist and water walking, it, it was resolved toward the end of my pregnancy. Thank goodness. And the only other notable aspect of that pregnancy was uh, my daughter was diagnosed with an enlarged kidney during her during a second trimester. We did not know she was my daughter. We did not find out gender. In fact, after we found out she had this enlarged kidney, the midwife we were working with, you know, a nurse told us anecdotally that boys are often the ones that have this, this kidney issue. So we just kind of started assuming we were having a boy. And I had a friend around that time that I was pregnant who had a boy with this kidney issue. And so we just kind of went with it. We started calling the baby by the boy name and like referring to the baby as a he. We didn't like buy or decorate based on a boy, but we just kind of went with it. We thought we were having a boy. <laughs> but overall, it was a, a pretty easy pregnancy. And we worked with a, um, a hospital midwife group um, for two reasons. We were drawn to the natural care of the midwifery practice, but also the clinic was right next door to the apartment that we lived in at the time. So that was really convenient. And overall, we had a really positive experience with them. I think there were four, maybe five midwives that we met with, some more than others. The one that ended up being uh, with us and assisting at our birth was one I had only met once, but she um, was incredible and really grateful for her, even though we didn't know her that well beforehand. I was planning on an unmedicated birth. Uh, We took one um, labor and delivery class with a local doula. And I felt like we learned a lot from that. I felt like we were prepared. But as, as we all know, that there's really no preparing completely for <laughs> what you might encounter when you actually go into, uh, into labor. 
So my, my labor story is that on the day of my due date, I, actually, I was at the grocery store. I just been at the Y water walking and I was like vividly remember walking down the aisle and feeling my first contraction and thinking, Oh, that's, that's what that feels like. And it, I had more throughout the evening, but nothing consistent or strong, but they definitely started on my due date, which I feel like is kind of rare. And that night I had more contractions sporadically. I didn't sleep really well, but the contractions were not ramping up to the point where I felt like I needed to do anything about them. So I just kind of, I laid in the guest bedroom so I could have space to spread out. And I timed them throughout the night. I rested a little bit. I didn't wake my husband up because again, it didn't seem like needing to go to the hospital was imminent. And then the next morning we decided that my husband was going to go to work for a little bit. We'd check in. I called my principal and told him that I was, you know, effectively going on maternity leave. And then I, I walked over to the midwife clinic and they checked me and the midwife said, I think I was about at a three around there. And she said, I could go to the hospital or I could go home and labor for a little bit longer and then head in once my husband was home. I definitely didn't get the impression that I had progressed enough to necessitate going to the hospital immediately. So I walked over to Brugger's and got himself a bagel and some juice and then walked home. And my husband came home around lunch and we kind of felt like, well, I guess there's not much else to do here. Now we might as well go to the hospital. And we checked in. Midwife came. Again, it was one that I hadn't worked with a whole lot, but was still really excited that she was there with us um, and that she was with us the whole time. We had a wonderful nurse as well. And I tried laboring in different positions and I found relief being in the, the whirlpool tub for a little bit. And then I don't remember exact dilation numbers as I, as you know, the, as hours progressed, but labor wasn't exactly stalled. Like I was making slow progress, but it, it wasn't quick either. The midwife, she broke my bag of waters just to kind of keep things moving along. And eventually I remember contractions becoming very intense, more frequent, not able to talk through them, more pain. And I was trying to hold out on an epidural. And so I asked what my options were and they recommended fentanyl just kind of for a quick relief. So I got a dose of fentanyl and I took a nap for a little bit, maybe like 20, 30 minutes. And that was nice because I was pretty exhausted by that point. This is, we got to the hospital mid-afternoon. By the time I got the fentanyl, it was probably, I don't know, six or seven at night. And the contractions just kept coming. I was getting more exhausted. Going back in the tub did not work at that point. It didn't provide much relief. And then a second dose of fentanyl really didn't have any effect on me. I wasn't able to rest like I had um, with the first. And so eventually I kind of broke down and asked the midwife if it was too late for an epidural because I just didn't know how much longer it was going to keep going. I was mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, and I was a little worried she was going to say it was too late to get one, but she said it wasn't. So uh, they called the anesthesiologist and then things felt a whole lot better after that. I remember being able to like laugh and joke with my husband, Pat, and the, the midwife and the mm-hmm. nurse. Later on in the evening, I, I don't have a like, strong sense of time of how all of this was happening, but probably around like 10 or 11 that night, we were told it was time to push and we were so excited because we thought, oh, this is it. Like, we're going to meet the baby soon. We figured like delivery was imminent at that point and kind of naive and realizing how long pushing can take. And because of the epidural was working so well, like I couldn't even feel contractions. I had to be told or I had to look at the monitor in order to see that I was having one in order to push. And so looking back, I wonder if I was able to really push effectively because I didn't even, I couldn't feel anything. Um, I pushed on my back for a little bit, but it also felt really good to use the squat bar. I, I pushed a while using the squat bar, but there was just no, no progress. 
at one point the baby's heart rate dropped. So I was on oxygen for a little bit. That was a little scary. And I think all in all, I pushed around two hours and the baby just had not descended at all. And my husband and I were exhausted and my husband just finally looked at the midwife and said, what are our options here? Mm. And she midwife checked position or anything like that. Um, the baby's position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I assume she had, you know, I don't remember anything about the baby being in a, a being, you know, in a poor position and I've read Uh my op report and it didn't say anything about her position. I mean, the ultimate reason uh, for the C-section was failure to descend. To descend. Yeah. To descend. Yep. But yeah, nothing in terms of like chin placement or overall body placement that was really the the culprit for why she wasn't descending. Right. And so the midwife, you know, told us she was honest. She goes, you could keep pushing. That's fine. We're fine with letting you push or we can talk about a C-section. And she was not pushy either way. She was just giving us our options and we opted to go with the C-section. So it wasn't necessarily an emergency C-section, but it didn't feel entirely elective either, which kind of sounds strange because we did choose it, but it just didn't feel like I was going to be able to deliver her naturally. You felt like you had no other choice. Yeah, that is how it felt. And it was, it was late and we were exhausted and just didn't know what was coming next. We had we felt like we were prepared, but in the moment, we, we didn't know that first time moms often have long labors and we didn't know how long pushing can take. And um, so we chose to have the C-section. We talked about it, my husband and I, and we decided to go for it. And once we gave our consent, Pat and I both remember things just getting really intense really quickly. Like there were so many people in the room all of a sudden, the anesthesiologist returned. It's, it felt like there were tons of nurses there. It just got really crazy. And when the anesthesiologist was coming to, you know, redo my epidural or prep me for surgery, I remember him looking over, he was, you know, checking the epidural and he was like leaning over me and he got this look in his eyes and he goes, huh, that's not supposed to happen. And what, what does that mean? <laughs> I, I yeah, that's d- not I, comforting at all. <laughs> no, oh no. And I mean, something had come out of place. Um, and he was able to get it back in, but man, I will never forget the look on his face and the tone in his voice. <laughs> it just made everything seem really scary at the time. Um, you know, we just consented to surgery. Something was wrong with the epidural. I was exhausted. It, it just seemed to really heighten my anxiety about the situation and ultimately ended up being fine, but I don't think I'll ever forget <laughs> that, that comment. Hmm. That's, that's not supposed to happen. But it was kind of tense in the room, like the anesthesiologist was trying to get this epidural figured out. There was a nurse trying to remove my earrings. At some point, the anesthesiologist snapped at the nurse to like stop and to let him just work. And there was just a lot of energy in the room at the time. And suddenly I was being wheeled down the hall and I saw that my husband had to stay outside of the room. And just like in the movies, like he just got smaller in the distance as they wheeled me away. And I had no clue why he wasn't with me you know, I know they were prepping me. Now I know that. And I don't remember him coming back into the room. I know now that he was over my left shoulder, but I don't remember him being there. I remember the anesthesiologist was over my right shoulder and he was kind of narrating to me everything that was going to happen. And I assumed he was telling me how they were prepping me for the upcoming surgery. And he said something like, okay, you're going to feel a little tug now. And I was like, okay, yep, got it. And apparently that was the final part of the C-section because then someone called out, it's a girl. And I was just in shock because A, it was a girl. And we had thought, <laughs> thought it was a boy. We had thought it was a boy. And then B, 
I didn't even realize they were performing the surgery. I thought they were still prepping me. I thought my husband was still out in the hallway. Yeah, it goes really quick. Yes. And I was in <laughs> between just being exhausted and in shock and, and the epidural, I, I just had no clue what was going on. It was, it was so strange, but she was healthy, my daughter, and they, they placed her on my chest and I was just so excited that she was there. But then like, I didn't feel like I had good control over my hands. And I don't know if that was again, the anesthesia or the exhaustion, but like, I don't think she was on me for very long because I, I felt like I was going to drop her. It was, I just felt physically so exhausted and unlike myself. And then after that, I don't, I remember waking up in the room. I don't remember nursing her for the first time. Like my, my husband said that she, you know, my daughter was wheeled on the cart next to us. I don't remember any of that. I was just so exhausted and so out of it. She was born at two thirty in the morning. So we had gotten to the hospital mid afternoon. I had been in labor all morning before that. It was just a really long, a long day. Um, and I was just in shock when I woke up that I ended up having this C-section and I felt just, I mean, I felt like I had major surgery after laboring, you know, for 20 hours before that. That's a um, lot. It's a lot to go through a long labor and necessary. And it's like a double whammy. Yes. And I wasn't prepared for it. Like I said, I thought because I was really healthy um, during my pregnancy and I ran and I'm a healthy eater. Like I, I was prepared for a quick, healthy delivery. Um, and so I was just kind of in shock that the opposite had happened. And it, it took me kind of a while after my daughter was born to get over that feeling that I had failed. I mean, rationally, I knew that I hadn't failed, but emotionally with the hormones on top of it, something just felt really off about how labor and delivery ended up going. So I knew based on how the recovery went and how emotionally I dealt with that C-section, I knew that I, I wanted to try for a VBAC once we got pregnant again. And we started trying to get pregnant about 20 months after our daughter was born, kind of anticipating we might have some of the same issues that we had with um, trying to conceive our daughter. We tried Clomid, that didn't work. And we tried uh, another medication before moving on to uh, more assistance and those did not work. And we weren't sure that we wanted to go as far as IVF. We just didn't know financially, emotionally, if we were ready to, to do that. And also I had just accepted a new job. I'm a teacher and right around the time that we realized that we needed to work with it, the fertility clinic, I got a new job and I had asked them if they had infertility insurance coverage and they told me no. Whereas the school I was working for at the time did, um, they had great benefits for infertility and they were going to run out for me on September 1st. So we had, you know, to get our, you know, our game plan in action to figure out what, what we were going to try while we still had this insurance so that it was covered. Um, so we did a, an IUI and I really had a lot of hope for that. And the first one did not work. And that was really disappointing. And it, it was just hard. It's not how you imagine conceiving your kid. And I remember struggling with that emotionally, like driving home from the clinic after the first one crying, just thinking this was, this is so strange. Not how I thought this was going to happen. I just felt so, I mean, <laughs> conceiving a child is supposed to be something that brings people together and it felt so separate. So the first one did not work, but the second one did. And we were just overjoyed. It was right before the school year started. It was while we still had insurance coverage to cover the IUI and just a, a real blessing all around. This pregnant was a little bit different. I was a little bit more nauseous, um, which was hard while I was at work. So I was up in front of high school students who don't miss anything. So I'm like trying to chew on ginger candies and eat snacks and drink water to like prevent throwing up in front of my students because 
you know, had I done that, they would have immediately just shouted out, you know, oh, are you pregnant? Because they have no filter like that. Um, thankfully, that did not happen. <laughs> can you imagine, though? Yes. <laughs> um, and where's the trash can? <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was going to several times. And, oh. you know, one class, by the time I did tell them I was pregnant, they were like, well, yeah, we've known that. Like, oh, they, they, they just, yeah. they just pick up on things. But they, they had the decency not to say anything. Yeah. Um, but no, I have, I have wonderful students, but, um, but yeah, overall a good pregnancy, like my first, I was a little bit more sick. Like I said, um, I started throwing up actually in the second trimester, which was strange. I had that same rib out of place for pretty much the same at the same point in my pregnancy as well, but physical therapy and then water walking helped too. So I would, yeah, I would go to the pool, but then COVID hit and the pool got closed. Everything got closed, <laughs> including school. So because I couldn't swim anymore, I started going on long walks and long, my long walks is where I discovered the VBAC link. My, my midwife had mentioned that this would be a good resource to help me prepare for a VBAC. And Your midwife recommended the VBAC link? Yes. Yep. Her name what? is Lauren. Her name is Lauren. Yep. She's, she was a wonderful um, oh, that makes practitioner to work with. Yes. Oh, and actually, that's cool. I love it when providers, I don't know, I think it feels, it just like adds to me, it feels like a, a little bit more credibility, like to what we're doing. And not that we need more credibility, I don't, but like, it's always just kind of like a fist bump, you know, like, all right, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that was exactly how I found out about you guys. And I actually should mention that I, I switched midwife practices to a different in-hospital uh, midwife group, because the one that I went with for my daughter's pregnancy did not do VBAC. So you could get VBAC care with, you could get VBAC care with them up and through like week 26 or something. And then you had to switch to an OB or if you knew you were going to have a APC section, you could work with that midwife group all through your right. pregnancy. Um, and so even though I had a great experience with those midwives, I knew that I wanted to try for a VBAC. So I went with the other hospital in town. That group had a midwife practice that was very supportive of VBACs, including this, um, this midwife, Lauren, who um, happened to be a family friend of my stepmom. And so there was just that added connection there with her but all the midwives at that practice were very supportive at every appointment I you know they knew I was a TOLAC patient and I every appointment I would ask them what can I be doing right now to help ensure my chances of success for VBAC and they all were they answered my questions they tried to give me as many ideas as possible and so I felt a lot of support throughout my entire pregnancy from them now however with this midwife practice there was a little bit of of confusion that is worth mentioning so my original due date was Wednesday, April 22nd, based on my last missed period. And when we had our first ultrasound with this midwife practice in early October, they measured the baby a week ahead of the original due date. So they changed it to April 16th. And we were a little perplexed because we knew the exact date of conception because of the IUI, but they changed it. So we went with it. And then in late March, I went for a routine midwife appointment and the baby was measuring a little bit small. So the midwife sent me for an ultrasound and then based on the baby's measurements being small, the baby was diagnosed as IUGR, intrauterine growth restricted. And so I called my husband to tell him this and he remembered that the due date had been changed. And so I brought that up with the physician's assistant who was doing a non-stress test on me because of the IUGR diagnosis. And I said, I had this IUI on July 29th. And is it possible the baby's measuring behind because it was actually due a week later? And so now it's just a little, seems a little small. And she's like, okay, well, let me go look into that. And she checked with the physician, that a physician at the, the clinic. And she said, well, we're going to stay with IUGR diagnosis. 
you know, come in extra ultrasounds, non-stress tests. We're like, okay. And additionally, they wouldn't let me go past 39 weeks with the baby being IUGR. So there was talk of an induction if I hadn't gone into labor naturally. They told me if my cervix started to dilate, they could induce me and I could labor naturally and try for my VBAC. But at 39 weeks of my cervix hadn't dilated, they'd have to use Cytotec to ripen the cervix. And then with Cytotec, they couldn't allow me to labor as a TOLAC patient once they had yeah. used that. Yep. Yeah. Cytotec. Well, there's Cytotec, Cervidel. There's tons of different like... Yes. But things, cervix ripener. But yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. they said, yeah, if there was no sign of dilation, my VBAC was essentially we out. Can't, we can't use that. Yep. Yeah, that's what they told me. And so on one hand, I was really disappointed about the potential loss of a VBAC because I had been, you know, for 35 weeks thinking I was a good candidate, was preparing for it mentally. But on the other hand, there was some peace of mind in knowing that delivery would occur before the projected peak of, of COVID because we're talking late April was when the baby was due and then we're going to, it was going to be, they were going to, you know, induce me or have the C-section at the beginning of April. And we mm-hmm. were, we were, I guess, kind of relieved to know that the baby would be here before things got really bad. So I was starting to mourn the loss of the VBAC, but just having the baby here safely during a pandemic seemed far more important. (laughs) So for a few weeks, I had this diagnosis of IUGR, was starting to think the baby was going to be coming soon. And at one of my appointments, I saw Lauren, this midwife again, the one who would recommend the podcast. And she was really surprised to hear of everything that had like happened at my past few appointments because I had not seen her. And she said, will you go over with me the timeline of everything? She said, I want to protect your VBAC and I want to know everything that happened. And I want so I, to meet this person. She is wonderful. <laughs> she really awesome. is. She is just, yeah, a compassionate, informed provider. So I started from the beginning, like Megan, back from conception. Sorry. It took Good. me a minute to unmute my microphone. Megan, we need to do like the VBAC Link World Tour and like, except for. Just the world States. tour. And like, <laughs> get an RV and go right around to all the cities and meet all, all the these providers. people. And, and, <laughs> wouldn't that, that would be, be so fun. much fun? That I mean, like fun. one day when we don't have kids or doula clients or other responsibilities. <laughs> when we don't have, yeah. We can just gallivant around the country. Um, that would and we be can fun. Even, we could even get a wrap, like a wrap on the RV and have like the V-back link mobile. It'd be oh pretty my, sweet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I would show up when you come to Des Moines and I would bring Lauren. Yes. <laughs> to party. <laughs> so she wanted to know everything that happened. So I started at the beginning and I mentioned the IUI and she said, you had an IUI. And I said, yes. And apparently this important piece of information was not in my chart anywhere at the midwife clinic. And I, I know I had mentioned it, uh, but it had never been recorded. And the fertility clinic was supposed to send over my medical history, but they didn't. And I just assumed that they had. So after several phone calls to the fertility clinic, the on-site physician that works with the midwives, after her coming in and talking more with Lauren, they changed my due date back to the original one of April 22nd. And it was really hard emotionally because I really think because of COVID, because now we're thinking our baby's going to be born closer to the peak. It's baby's going to be born, you know, a couple weeks after we thought we were going to have um, him here. And I could tell that Lauren felt terrible about this. The physician that was in talking with me, she felt terrible. I mean, I'm not a person that puts blame. I try not to, to blame. And so I, I, I don't think negatively of, of, of what happened. It, it was stressful. Absolutely. It was emotional, exacerbated by the pandemic. But at the end of the day, 
because they realized this mistake and were able to correct it, it saved me from having an unnecessary C-section again. Because, you know, they were going to have to, you know, at 39 weeks, which, you know, was actually 38 weeks, my cervix would not have been, you know, showing any signs of dilation. So I would have had to do the cytotech and the VBAC would have been out. So it ended up being, ended up working in the end, although in the, in, in the moment, it was a really hard change to deal with that late in pregnancy during a pandemic. So yeah, the dating scan was wrong. There was miscommunication from the fertility clinic, just a lot of factors that went into this confusion. But my due date became April 22nd once again, and it took away the IUGR diagnosis. Baby was in a healthy weight range. Everything was fine. They would have let me go to 41 weeks before we had to talk induction. So again, we're looking at the end of April at this point before the baby might have been there. But it turns out we didn't need to wait till the end of April. During the early morning hours of like Sunday, April 19th, a few days before my, my due date, I started to feel contractions just like with my daughter off and on again throughout the night. Again, it didn't seem like any action was necessary because I didn't get consistent. I was able to sleep a little bit. In the morning, I went for a long walk. I figured if they were Braxton Hicks, they'd go away. Um, and they didn't. But so I knew labor had started. It was a beautiful day. I was listening to my labor playlist on the walk. I called the hospital. Lauren was the midwife on call. So that was very exciting. <laughs> when I got back home, I played with my daughter a little bit outside. I planted some lettuce in our garden because I knew I wanted to get it in the ground before <laughs> the baby came because it was like planting time. So we planted some lettuce and started to watch church on TV since our church was still closed. We had settled in to watch it still having contractions, starting to time them. And then all of a sudden things got really intense, really fast. And I, I turned to my husband. I was like, we don't have as much time as we thought we did. We just kind of figured we'd be able to kind of make our way to the hospital in the afternoon, like we did with my daughter. But it was evident that I could not wait much longer. So we had to call my dad and his wife and they came to get our daughter very quickly. And then my husband drove me to the hospital and when they checked me in the triage room, once we got up to the labor and delivery unit, I was at a 10. Like I had shown up at the hospital at a 10 and I was just in shock. Awesome. I was, I know. Nice work. Yeah. I kept saying, I'm at a 10. I'm at a 10. Like I thought for sure I would get there and they'd be like, yeah, you're at a four or five. And then we kind of go from there like we had with my daughter. But no, I was at a 10, which explained why I felt like I needed to push a little bit. Like we got into the, the room, Lauren showed up and I was pushing. The nurses were trying to like stick me on both sides. I could not get IVs in my veins. One nurse was trying to get all these intake questions from my husband and I'm like ready to go. My water broke and I tried different positions, but ultimately like being on my side was the most comfortable. And I did ask for an epidural at one point just because mentally I kept thinking it was going to become like my daughter's labor. Like it was the pushing was going to go on forever. And Lauren and the nurse kept saying, you're doing great. There is progress. And I just, I didn't believe them. I kept saying, are you sure? Like, what if this goes on for another couple hours? And they kept saying, it's not going to. They brought the mirror over to show me that I could see the baby's head. But I still was just in my head too much thinking like this could go on forever. So I asked for an epidural again. And Lauren said, no, there's no time. The baby is coming. She's like, are you? I said, are you sure? She's like, yes, I'm putting my gown on. Pat's putting, my husband's putting gloves on like the baby is coming. And so I was like, okay, like I believed them at that point. She's like, two more pushes. So are you sure two? She's like, yes, two. And so I pushed and he came out and my husband said, it was a boy. 
he said, it's Logan. That was the name we had picked out for our son. It was actually the name we had picked out for our daughter too. Um, when we thought she was a boy, but they said, you know, he said, it's Logan. And they brought him to me. And I was just in shock that I had done it. I was in shock that we had this beautiful little boy and it just felt so different from my daughter's labor. And I delivered the placenta. Lauren came and showed it to me, which was really fascinating. You know, she said, this is what kept your baby alive for these, for this time. And it was really kind of cool to see it. And just like that, they cleaned up Logan, they gave him to us and it was just Pat and Logan and I in the room. And I, I was aware. I felt so much better than I did after my daughter's C-section. And we were just sitting there peacefully looking out the window over the Des Moines river and downtown Des Moines and eating peanut butter chocolate chip tortilla wraps that my husband had made (laughs) before we left the house. And it was 180 degrees different than, than my daughter's labor. And I was, I'm so grateful that it worked out like it did, even with the due date confusion, even with the pandemic, I, I felt really empowered and really proud of myself and just so happy. And yeah, and Sorry. I still, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think like, I'm, I'm in the moment again, <laughs> thinking of like what else I can possibly say to describe just how incredible it felt. You know, it's really funny because we get people all the time in our Facebook group or messaging or emailing us and saying, I'm eight weeks out from my VBAC and I still am riding that VBAC high, you know, like oh, riding the sure. wave, that VBAC high. I just my gosh, I still can like go back to the memories and, and all the emotions when my first feedback baby was born. And it's just so incredible. And I mean, I think anytime you meet your baby is, is obviously incredible, but, but sometimes it can be also be rough. Like we know, like with, um, your C-section and my C-section and Megan's C-section is like, cause you're so kind of drugged up and out of it and with all the meds and everything. But I just, I, I love that. I love the birth high, it's real. Don't call me an oxytocin vampire, you doulas. There's some doulas that say like, if you do birth work just for the birth high, you're an oxytocin vampire. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's necessarily true. But um, doula groups can get pretty intense. I just Every group that. can get very intense, <laughs> especially, especially on social yes. media, I feel like has given yes. rise to very strong opinions oh, for sure. <laughs> from bef- behind but, the screen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But while you're telling your story, I wanted to talk to you about due dates and IUGR because I had a conversation with a close friend of mine recently who is trying to get pregnant and her first baby they moved her due date to be a week earlier and she was induced at 41 weeks and two days. But she was like, I wonder if I was really induced at 40 weeks and two, 40 weeks and two days instead of 41 weeks and two days because of the date change and everything. And we were talking about like the accuracy of due dates and what's better to gauge your due date off of as far as like last menstrual period or ovulation time or early early ultrasound, like there's so many ways to set your due date. And, and the evidence-based birth writes a really good article on the evidence on due dates. And I encourage you guys right now to go and just Google, we're going to drop a link to it in our show notes. So, but go and Google evidence-based birth due dates, because 
it talks so much about due dates and how 40 weeks is not an expiration date. ACOG recommends going to 42 weeks and six days before intervening. I mean, you're not technically past due until 42 weeks and six days. Did you know that? You never hear people mention that number. No, never. Everyone's like, oh, 39 weeks. 39 weeks is the new 40 weeks. Like, come on. It's just having a little patience and time. And, you know, LMP, the last menstrual period due date is based on a woman who has a 28-day cycle and ovulates on day 14. It's like a textbook, right? It's a textbook menstrual cycle. 28 days long, ovulate on day 14, 14-day luteal phase. But guess what? Some women ovulate on day 18. And so then technically their due date's four days early. Or some women, like my sister-in-law, she had like five periods a year. So what? She ovulates on day, I don't know, 78? I don't even know. But the fact that we put so much emphasis on this one, one day, that doesn't mean beans for when your baby's going to be born, except one day I had five out of seven clients in a row have their babies on their due dates. It was the weirdest, coolest thing for me. But anyways, so, so know that, learn about the evidence on due dates, learn more about your cycles. In fact, when I was pregnant with my first baby or my my first baby, my second, my VBAC baby, we had our due date with him and at the 20 week girl scan. And this is before we switched to home birth. And one of the reasons why we switched to home birth, probably um, the OBGYN said, your baby's measuring 11 days ahead. Normally we don't mess with due dates unless, you know, they're like five to seven days off on this scan, but this is 11. And so I'm pretty sure we should move your due date to be 11 days earlier. And I was like, no, 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 no. I know exactly when I conceived. I like whooped out my phone. I had like my cycle tracker, ovulation sticks, basal body temperature, right? I had like the whole shebang. I'm like, look at all of this. There's like one possible time in this entire three week window or four week window that I could have conceived. And I'm not changing my due date. And he looked at my date and he's like, okay, well we can just leave it how it is. And it's a good thing he did because he came eight days early. And if, he, and if I would have seen the hospital, I, he would have been 19 days early and then everyone would have been freaking out. You I wish we I mean? had been more of an advocate like you were, you know, cause we had that same <laughs> level of, of information of evidence. And I actually, I do have really regular cycles. And again, we knew when we conceived cause we had the IU, um, the IUI and my husband raised some questions, you know, like, well, you know, why are we changing this? We know all of this. And they said, well, this is what we're doing. And I'm a trusting person. So I just said, okay. And we went with it. But, but looking back, I wish we had pushed a little bit more about that because it could have saved us a lot of stress with the back and forth during a pandemic. It was just a really stressful time for us. And that all could have been avoided had we, I guess, advocated for ourselves a little bit more. And you know what though? It's just something that you don't know. People don't know. And you know what? Get from, gosh, I was talking to my friend the other day, the same one that's trying to conceive now. We talked about like basal body temperature and she's like, should I do ovulation stick? Should I like be tracking this, that, or the other thing? And I'm like, listen, there are like 5 million free apps on the app store that you can go and download period trackers, cycle trackers, pregnancy trackers, ovulation trackers, pick one, download it. 
and go buy a $3 thermometer at Walgreens. Take your temperature at 7 o'clock every morning. As soon as it goes up or drops, oh my gosh, it's been years since I've done it. Either one, then... Doesn't it drop and then go up? Yeah, it drops. And then it drops and then the day before you ovulate and then it goes up and then and it stays up and then it stays up unless you're don't, you don't get pregnant. Then it drops back down to the baseline and right. put yeah. that, you know, all you got to do, take that thermometer, stick it in your mouth, whip it out, whip out your phone I mean, and put your, put the thing in there and then track your cycle days and then track the times you're intimate with your partner and wham, bam, you have a, a conception date. Or at least like a three-day window of conception. And we had that. I mean, we, yeah, we, we should have just asked a few more questions. And I think they would have been open to answering them. Like I said, we had really positive experience with this practice and everyone there, even after everything happened, I still would recommend this midwife practice to, to any expecting mother, any expecting couple. But um, yeah, we just, we had that information, but they told us one thing and, and we just went with it until, until it became problematic. Yeah. That's just a hard thing. Be- I just, it's just, it's the be all end all. I think of childbirth is people are not comfortable having hard conversations like that with their provider, or they don't know that they can, or they don't think that their opinion matters because they're the ones that have the medical degree. Well, let me tell you what, you know better about yourself and your body than his medical degree will ever know about that, his or her. Sorry, I'm just kind of generalizing, but, but yeah, have the card conversations, learn about your body, learn about what your own body does, what your cycles do, what your pregnancy feels like, what's normal, what's not normal, kick counts. Okay, sure. You can do kick counts if you want, but what is more important than counting kicks in your like last month of pregnancy is learning what's normal for your baby to move. And when it's not normal for your baby to move, like my babies were super active around lunchtime. They'd have hiccups almost all the time around dinner time. As soon as I lay down for bed, super active for like two hours and then out. like that was just normal for my baby. But I was familiar with that. But if you're counting kicks, you're like so hung up on the number that you may not notice when things go abnormally for that. Well, I just kind of got off on a little weird tangent there, but I think it was helpful. Anyways, Megan, um, Megan, funny enough, is uh, she's just texting me. She's on the phone with her termite contractor. <laughs> Uh-oh, are they back so, or just a follow-up? No, um, I don't know. She's like, um, she's on, she just texted me. Shoot, I'm on the phone. Um, oh, nope, it's for her counters. Oh, she's been waiting for that call for three weeks. It's for her counters, her kitchen counters. Okay, um, glad it's not the termites then. Not the termites. This is a happy call. Well, hopefully, <laughs> I don't know. I was supposed to find out on the next podcast episode we have coming up in a couple minutes. But, Laura, I'm so excited that we got to chat with you. Your story is beautiful, but I have two questions left to ask you. The first question is, what is a lesson like a secret lesson or something nobody really talks about that you wish you would have known ahead of time when preparing for birth? I think when it came to my daughter, you know, my first delivery, I don't know if it's so much a secret, but just something that I didn't know as a first time mom is just, I mean, it's a good idea to have a plan, 
but there's no sense in getting hung up on it. I think that's what I dealt with the most. And I'm sure you've heard that from other, other guests before too, but I think that's what I got hung up the most on after delivery was just that I had failed. My plan had failed. And, Mm. you know, with my, with my son's birth, I was, I had the mentality, I'm going to try for a VBAC. I'm going to hope that I can have one, but I, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, have my heart set on one thing or another, because I know that anything can happen. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, a healthy baby and a healthy mom are the most important thing. And, that, and I don't say that in the way that people say to diminish people having a C-section. I say that in the way that like, that's just what guided my, my thinking of, you know, I'm going to see what happens and we're just going to go from there based on how everyone is doing. And so I think having a plan is good, but not beating yourself up if that plan doesn't go according to how you, you thought it might go would be something I wish I had known before my daughter's birth. Yeah. Well, we will say healthy mom, healthy baby. Like it's the only thing that matters. And sometimes it is used in that context, but I think it's just kind of a given that everybody wants a healthy mom and a healthy baby at the end. I I just don't know of any, I've never heard of anybody not wanting that. Right. Um, But there are so many ways to get there where the pregnant person is driving the car, where they're the ones making the decisions and the choices for what that means to get there to them. Sometimes it's vaginal birth, sometimes it's VBAC, sometimes it's repeat cesarean, and sometimes it changes courses 500 different times along the way. So yeah, great, good advice. All right, and then the second question is, what is your tip, what is your best tip for someone preparing for VBAC? I think honestly, just knowing lots of different experiences is super helpful. And that's what I really found with this podcast as I was preparing for Logan's birth was just knowing all the different ways that birth can go. Not only was it empowering, but it would just, it gave me a lot of knowledge. I would come back and I'd tell my husband, you know, I learned about this today, or did you know, this is, this is even possible when, you know, when delivering. And I think just arming yourself with as much information and experience as possible, at least just helps, you know, what's possible it may not be what ends up happening for you, but at least you maybe won't be as shocked in the moment because, oh yeah, you know, I've heard of that before, or I've read about that before. Just having a little bit of awareness, I think, can go a long way in helping you feel more mentally and therefore more emotionally prepared for whatever happens when, yeah. when your baby decides to arrive. Yeah, I agree with you on that. It's it's important because hearing other stories, even the hard ones, really help give us a better perspective and a better understanding of how things can go and what decisions we might make if that ever happens to us. Absolutely. All right, my dear Laura, Megan is unfortunately still talking to her countertop contractors. I understand. We're so, we're so excited to her. Or we're so excited for her, and we're so grateful for you sharing your story today. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you guys do. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.